One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And we're firing the emergency podcast Klaxon. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our political correspondent, Freddie Hayward. Thanks so much for scrambling in this morning, Freddie. I know you've got a lot of other stuff well, to I be doing. Well, I rewrote Morning Call in a, in a rush, but it was absolutely fine. Brilliant. Okay, well, all of our listeners should go and read that because I'm sure it's completely... Smooth, error-free. I think so. I think so. You just keep it short. And it doesn't sweet, betray you? your hassles. No, 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 no. I hope not. We've been thinking about this for days. Haven't yeah. We? <laughs> so we haven't done this in a while because we haven't had any big sackings or resignations for a bit. But Suella Braverman has been sacked this morning as Home Secretary and asked to leave the government completely. Um, and Rishi Sunak has used this to kind of kick off a major cabinet reshuffle. James Cleverly, who was Foreign Secretary, is replacing her at the Home Office. And probably the most curveball announcement so far and. I need to tell our listeners we are recording like as this is happening. So a lot will be happening in the course of the day. David Cameron is returning. He's been put in the Lords so that he can be Foreign Secretary. And that is the former Prime Minister. In yes, case that is the former Prime Minister, if David you don't Cameron, remember. Who came in a new up-and-coming <laughs> rising star in the Conservative Party. So let's see if we can figure all of this out. And I do have to emphasise it is breaking as we're recording. Should we start off by talking about Suella Braverman's yeah. um, sacking? Why is she gone? Well, I mean, rumours have been going around Westminster for days now that we're going to have this big reshuffle. I think the key thing is that all of her comments, all of her forays into the media has been an absolute distraction over the whole of the autumn. I remember this was the autumn that the government's supposed to reset their political narrative. You've got Suella Braverman sounding off at the same time that we've got the King's speech about yeah. homelessness being a lifestyle when it wasn't really official government policy. And then we've had the same thing with the protest this weekend. She came out and said they were hate marches, which attracted a lot of criticism, whatever you think about that. And it continued through through the weekend. So I think for number 10, it was getting to the point where she was both undermining Rishi Sunak's authority and distracting from their broader political mission. And she's been a loose cannon for a while. I remember speaking to people who work closely with her during the Conservative Party conference last year when she was making her kind of freelance comments about Britain having a benefit street culture and her dream being a Rwanda plane taking off on the front page of the Telegraph. And even then she was causing some... (laughs) <laughs> some some worries within the party about the way that she was just saying what she liked. And then, of course, earlier this year, we had her speech to the think tank in Washington talking about how multiculturalism has failed. And that's something that Rishi Sunak has actually disputed. So there was clearly a difference between at least the tone in which the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary talked. Yeah, this is one of the interesting things, because is there that much difference between her yes. policy on the boats and Rishi Sunak's? I'm not sure there is. And it's one of the reasons that I don't think necessarily she'll be able to mount a massive rebellion from the backbenches. Yeah. If Rishi Sunak 
uh, can basically have the same policy that she's advocating, then I think he can subdue some of that. But the big question is when we have the Supreme Court ruling on Wednesday, um, well, it's expected on Wednesday, uh, on the Rwanda scheme, that will completely change the dynamic. And I think that's the context in which we have to see the reshuffle. If the Supreme Court does strike down the Rwanda policy, then you're going to have calls within the party for the UK to leave the European Court on Human Rights. So that's another lightning rod, another focus for the the right-wingers within the party to coalesce around and, and Suella Bravman could be at the front of that charge. Yeah. And so why did he leave it to sort of the Monday morning after this weekend of protests? Because that was the precipitative yeah. element of her of her departure from government, wasn't it? The way that she approached the policing of the pro-Palestinian march this weekend that coincided with Armistice Day. Yeah. So she's been very critical all week of the police, essentially suggesting that they should have banned the pro-Palestinian protest. The police said no because they didn't think there was enough intelligence to suggest that there's going to be a serious risk of serious... Um, sorry, there's going to be a risk of serious disorder. Yeah. And I think number 10 perhaps were just waiting to see what happened. They they thought if they did sack her earlier on, then perhaps if there was a lots of disorder, she would have been proven right and she would have been a bit of a martyr in that yeah. sense. But... So I think that's the reason they left it till after the weekend. Has that worked? I'm not necessarily sure. It doesn't seem as if she was wrong. I was there on Saturday. It did descend into disorder. It was very chaotic. I mean, it must be said most of the march was completely peaceful. But then you had the far right thugs who were basically there at the behest of Tommy Robinson, who's back. He's back on Twitter. He was back in central London again. And they were just trying to intercept the protest again and again and again. The police were doing or trying to do a very difficult job of keeping them separate. And that sometimes didn't work and you did get violence. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a very intense weekend. And I think that just spoke to the where Suella Braverman is. And also she just tapped into something that's true. I mean, the other thing I think is worth noting is so many people have blamed the violence on Suella Braverman. Mm. As if anti-Muslim bigotry in this country or anger about immigration is only here because Suella Brava made some comment in the papers the week before. No, of course, it's much more fundamental than that. It's been going on for a very long time. We saw a very similar pattern back in 2017 when you had the Al-Quds protest. Darren Osborne, who was the Finsbury Park mosque terrorist, he was supposedly inspired by Tommy Robinson back then. So this is a, a long-term problem you can't at all. I think it's easy. It's a Westminster way of looking at things just to go, oh, it's, it's Suella Bravman's fault. She's been inciting hatred. Well, OK, I think that's slightly short term. OK, well, it's interesting because you said she's right. Let's get into this slightly because she her big issue with this protest was um, on the pro-Palestinian side, wasn't it? Yeah. And she was suggesting that the police police different marches differently, whether they're drawn from the left or the right. Mm. But as you saw over the weekend, the vast majority of arrests and people trying to make trouble were from the far right yeah. contingent. And of course, the police are investigating um, elements of anti-Semitism within the main march as well. So in that sense, there was some hatred within that march as well. But you saw that the balance really wasn't tipped uh, in what she was suggesting was going to be the problem over the weekend. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you also saw that she didn't condemn the far-right thugs as explicitly as she did the pro-Palestinians yes, exactly. after the march with her comments yesterday. Uh, yeah, most of the violence and the arrests, as you, as you say, Anish, were from the, the far-right. There were also elements of violence, anti-Semitism, hatred amongst the march. I remember speaking to one 25-year-old 
uh, man at the end of the march he and his mates were wearing balaclavas they had their big German shepherd on a chain I was like how are you you know what, what are you doing here and he just straight away went into a, a bit of a rant about how Israel created Hamas how they were actually responsible for the massacre on October 7th so there what, were Israel were responsible they, yes they, okay. they, they so said it was the IDF it's a conspiracy theory yeah. the IDF are the ones who committed the massacre as a pretext to invade Gaza so there was these, there were also these elements of anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories. Now, that's not to say that it's representative of the whole march. There are hundreds of thousands of people there. And obviously, I didn't, didn't speak to anyone, but th- there's been pockets of that. But yeah, it's definitely, you're definitely right to say most of the violence came from the far right. Yeah. And whether or not that was directly a result of Suella Braverman's words or not, it basically cast what she'd been doing in the days before in a light of, okay, she's been too inflammatory. She's got, she's basically been on the, she's got the wrong end of the stick on this, really. I mean, I guess that's how people are portraying it, yeah. I mean, I I think it's very hard to find that causal link. Mm. There are some reports of people saying, well, we're here to prove that it's not a hate march. Yeah, okay, this has also been billed as the biggest march yet for quite a long time, so Mm. I don't think the two are necessarily causally related. But also, just as I said earlier, it neglects the fact that we need to look at the long-term issues here. Why is it that we've got the far right coming to London? Are we looking at the policing here? Are we looking at anti-Muslim bigotry? There was also lots of racist chants from from them. So there are undercurrents that need analysing rather than just a Westminster debate about what the Home Secretary might have said as part of her political posturing for the leadership. Yeah, and I do remember going to cover some of the sort of so-called UK yellow vests marches and Mm -hmm. things. And you did see this group of people come out for some of the Brexit marches to clash with the people's vote marches some of the anti-lockdown is connected to some of these groups so you do get these groups of people coming to London to try and stir up trouble every time there's a different cause whether they agree or not with it the Tommy Robinson telegram account for the past five days has just been full of a combination of conspiracy theories, a combination of Elon Musk videos, a combination of Douglas Murray videos. So there's a a web of causes, I think, that amongst the far right always get connected. It's often related to online radicalisation, it's often related to conspiracy theories, and these things express themselves in different ways. Yes, and and the whole sort of Westminster wisdom was... Sunak hadn't sacked Braverman yet because she'd be she'd cause him more trouble on the back benches. Yeah. How true is that? I mean, how much support does she really have? Uh, well, it's questionable. And she's not got this large coterie of supporters that Rishi Sunak did actually have because he was seen by many as a really extremely uh, proficient politician. She doesn't have that as such. She does have lots of sympathetic MPs. You've seen some of the sort of classic people we'd expect on, on this side of things. Lee Anderson has expressed some support for her. I think Miriam Cates did as well last week. But I think it's really hard to tell. Uh, you've got to remember as well in the past six weeks or so, MPs haven't spent much time in Westminster. Yeah. So there's not been that. Because there is a recess while they do the King's Speech. Yeah, which and... just keeps happening. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like we've not been in Westminster at all for the past six weeks. We had conference season. Then, yeah, we had the prorogation for the King's Speech. So, yeah, that is the big question, I think. Can she corral that support within the party and cause some serious problems for Sunak? Mm. And how fair is it? Because I, I'm, I agree with you. I think there's quite a lot in substance that's similar with between what she was saying and what some more, maybe in more mild-mannered term, terms, some other ministers were saying. So, you know, Rishi Sunak, Oliver Dowden, and then you had Alex Chalk, the yeah. Justice Secretary, and Tom Tugan, who was seen as more sort of liberal... MPs saying the same things basically about this march, not trusting the police to police it properly and saying it would be better if it didn't go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's 
very noticeable that people often or always talk about the tone of the Home Secretary rather than actually engaging with their arguments. Mm. I think one of the key differences, though, is that she is the Home Secretary. And the key problem was that she was uh, supposedly or seeming to interfere with the operational independence of the Met Police, which is a very important thing. You know, the politicians make laws, the police enforce them. That's one of the key aspects of of rule of law. And that was one of the key reasons, I think, that it was so controversial. Mm. Yeah, as if any Home Secretary hasn't tried to politicise the police before. (laughs) Anyway, that's a different conversation. After the break, we'll discuss Suella Braverman's replacement and the wildcard appointee of this reshuffle so far, Lord Cameron. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So let's quickly talk about James Cleverly before moving on to Cameron. He is actually quite an experienced cabinet minister now. He's been around for for a while in these big roles, foreign secretary. How do you think he'll fare at the Home Office? Because it is a basket case of a department. And like you say, that Rwanda ruling is coming up, which is going to be a very delicate matter. Yeah, so he's going to be the person who is responsible for the migration issue all the way up, well, hopefully all the way up to the uh, next election. Uh, It's going to be a massive role. It's also a a shift away from foreign politics towards domestic politics. He's going to be in the limelight much more. He's going to be on the news much more. So I think an interesting question from the political perspective is, is this going to negatively affect James Cleverley's positioning for the top job? He was already running as the most popular cabinet minister, according to Conholm's ratings amongst Tory members. And we know that the foreign secretary is often a good position to jump into the top job. We saw Boris Johnson do it in in some form, and then Liz trusted it as well. He can sort of claim responsibility for these big agreements with countries around the world. He also looked quite prime ministerial as you're travelling around, whereas the Home Secretary is a job where you're having constant debates, constant arguments, you're talking about very controversial things. So it will be interesting to see if he tries to calm down the rhetoric, adopt a new tone. It will be fascinating. And has Rishi Sunak also potentially neutralise another leadership candidate in doing so. Yeah, because if it were me, I wouldn't really want to be moved to the Home Secretary position because it is a bit of a... You say no thanks. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a bit of a poison chalice, isn't it? Because like you say, being Foreign Secretary is really quite strangely not that much of a political job. You're not held to account on domestic issues like the contentious Mm. and affecting people's lives day to day. Um, But we'll see how he fares and whether or not he stays the most popular among Tory members. And how about this return of David Cameron? I mean, I really see the hand of William Haig here because Haig is very influential on Sunak's decision making and how number 10 works which you know you included in your piece about inside number 10 he obviously came back I mean he was never prime minister but he was leader of of, of the conservatives and came back as foreign secretary and was deemed to have done quite a good job in that position is this the thinking do you think behind Cameron's appointment Uh, yeah I mean it is remarkable it's a return to the past it 
speaks, I think. Return to the past. That's quite poetic, Freddie. Ah, thank you. <laughs> in my beginning is my end. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it speaks to the cycle of Tory politics at the moment. I think it also speaks to the fact that Rishi Sunak, even if he does have these right-wing politics, is actually quite sympathetic to the more Cameroon mm. liberal approach to to the way of governing things or the way of the way of governance, the, yes. the, having that more collaborative, professional way of approaching things that doesn't necessarily always lean on the the populism of Liz Truss or Boris Johnson, for instance. Mm, mm. I think it neutralises, demolishes actually his claims to be a change candidate. He has, as he did in his conference speech, condemned the politics of the past 30 years. And now he's brought in one of the architects of that consensus. Yeah, it's quite ironic. It's, it? It's, it also feels as if we've not done a good job, so let's go back to someone who's done it before. It feels like they're out of their depths and you have to go and call the prefect to come along and help them out. <laughs> And the other thing I think is really interesting about Cameron's appointment is that he pursued a very collaborative diplomatic approach to China. We had the famous golden era that yes. he and George Osborne pursued to try and get more Chinese investment into the UK. Since then, we've seen an absolute reversal of relations with the Chinese. Both the US, the UK, the EU have all recognised that China poses some national security threats and they've acted accordingly. I think it's also a, it's an affirmation of Rishi Sunak's more liberal approach to China. Yes, um, and James Cleverley's actually. Yeah. yeah, which is in complete contrast to Liz Truss. So we've seen both at the Treasury and at number 10, Rishi Sunak said that we need to ensure that we can still trade with China. He thinks that we should have cooperation on things like climate change. And I think that's an affirmation of this. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because you will have those China sceptics in the Conservative Party who are they're quite a weighty group of people. There's a lot of them who might be a little bit unsettled if Cameron returns to that attempt at a golden age with British, Britain's relationship with China. And then, of course, you know, he is going to always be associated with the Prime Minister who either Remainers blame for uh, doing the, the referendum in the first place yeah. and Brexiteers are unsettled by because he, he was on the Remain side of the argument. And while there might be sort of a bit of nostalgia, not just in the Conservative Party, actually, over Cameron, I mean, he has blotted his copybook quite spectacularly since he left office, hasn't he, with the Greensill lobbying scandal? Yeah, so Cameron went in to lobby for Greensill. While he was actually cleared of breaking any lobbying rules, it was clear that his reputation was absolutely besmirched. He was seen to be lobbying on behalf of a private finance company, using his experience as prime minister to try and get some favours from inside government. That was the perception. So I think it does speak again to the desperation of Rishi Sunak that he's reverted to someone who is known for, for lobbying for private companies. Yeah, desperation is interesting because it does suggest that that there's a dearth of, of figures on the sort of like one nation side of the party, doesn't mm. it? You could have got your Rory Stewarts or your Dominic Greaves to come in, but they've all gone. Yeah, and also I wrote about this last week or so. I do think there's a strong argument to to make that Rishi Sunak has given up on winning the next election. I think that's why you saw he was so excited, so focused on the AI summit, because that was a legacy project. It was not mm. necessarily about winning votes and trying to fight back. It was about securing a, a legacy for himself once he leaves office and maybe having someone come in with such experience, even if they're not going to be that politically helpful, says the same. So he's been put in a Lord so that he can be in yeah. government. Um, how does that actually work? Because we haven't had this situation where someone's 
held one of these great offices of state for a long time in the, from the Lords. Obviously, we do have Lords Ministers, yeah. but they're not high profile. No, so you've got lots of Lord Ministers. The Minister for uh, Investment, for instance, is a Lord. I think he's called Lord Dominic, if, if I have I got that right. I can't remember his second name. Uh, but what happens is that they basically are held to account in the Lords as... Um, MPs who are ministers are held to account in the House of Commons. It's not as if they go to the House of Commons to answer ministers' questions, mm. for instance. So I think you're going to have quite a strange situation where you've got the Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, Lord or Baron, I think he's actually got the barony of the United Kingdom, which is remarkable. Say so there's a big international event like Gaza or whatever it is, and they have to go and answer questions. He's going to be going into the House of Lords, so you're going to have that quite strange dynamic. So it means, I think, an elevated role for the other ministers in the Foreign Office, because they're going to be the ones answering ministers' questions in the Commons. I mean, I imagine that they will be doing media quite a lot as well. Mm. And and of course, in the Lords, the, the peers operate sometimes quite independently. They don't always vote along party lines. They're not as in hoc to their whips. When MPs are held to account, it is far more political. So I do think that it's going to put a lot of pressure on that Foreign Office team. Yeah, so you've got some senior figures. You've got Andrew Mitchell, for yeah. instance, who's a former chief whip and was a senior part of Cameron's government, actually, back in the day. So he was responsible for international development at the yeah. moment. You might also see him, as you say, Anoush, playing a greater role in answering questions in the House of Commons. And do you think we'll finally hear Labour talk more about austerity, Anoush? Yeah, exactly. Their, is I mean, this their opportunity? This is a nightmare for them because they don't want to talk about austerity, do they? And now they've got this massive target in the middle of the cabinet. So, yeah, I mean, that will be a question. Let's see how they respond to it. Thanks so much, Freddie, for coming in and doing this. I know you've got to get back to your desk and do more filing on this reshuffle. I'm sure... I've got another podcast to do. Have you? Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Stuck in the studio. But there will be developments throughout the day and we will, of course, pick up the entire reshuffle in our next episode. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, there'll be more in-depth analysis on the way on Thursday. So come back then for more from us. In the meantime, Freddie will be covering the latest in the New Statesman's daily politics email, Morning Call. Freddie, how can people sign up for that? There's a link in the description, so just click on that. As ever, if you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or put one in the YouTube comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Freddie Hayward. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. This episode was produced by Chris Stone. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.